We had a wonderful opportunity for the gospel of Jesus Christ at, on our property here through Panaprog. Again, thank you for all who helped and organized. I'm thankful, especially, I think, Brian York's efforts in this regard. Also, Ursula, you came through big time. Thank you. Uh, it was a wonderful time. And as I was sitting here, I was thinking, what an opportunity it is to proclaim the gospel to, in, in this community. And it made me pray for opportunities for the gospel for myself and to speak about the glories of the forgiveness of sins. Recently, I have seen an individual come to Christ um, right in front of my eyes. I did not need to lead him in the sinner's prayer. Oh, the Holy Spirit did that. And he wanted Jesus, he saw his sin, and he needed Jesus, and I watched it happen in front of my eyes. But, on the other hand, I have shared the same way with a different person, and it was like, and I get excited, I was like, I was offering a, and we don't write checks much anymore, but offering a million dollar check right there, take it, million, and didn't want anything to do with it. And then there's others that are in between, let's, let's meet again and I'll hear you about this, and then sometimes we do and sometimes we don't. And my question is, and I was thinking about it yesterday, why do people respond so differently to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? In the book of Luke, for example, Jesus, I mean, pretty good preacher, right? Arguably, I'm preaching from Isaiah 61 in his hometown. And how does his hometown respond to his sermon from Isaiah 61? His hometown people want to Usher him off the cliff. But on the other hand, there's Matthew or Levi, the tax collector, who when called by Christ, left his cash, left his tax booth, and followed Jesus Christ and was so full of joy at what he'd been saved from, he threw a big reception for Christ, which really angered the Pharisees. Why? Why the different responses to the gospel when it is proclaimed? Our passage this morning answers that question. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 8 as we continue again, part 2, in the famous parable of the soils. Luke chapter 8. And we're going to read verses 4 through 15, thinking about this question about why there are different responses to the Word of God. Luke chapter 8, I want you to find verse 4. When a large crowd was coming together, and those from various cities were journeying to him. He spoke by way of a parable. The sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture." Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Other seed fell into the good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. As he said these things, he would call out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. His disciples began questioning him as to what this parable meant. And he said, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see, 
and hearing they may not understand. And for our visitors, we unpacked verses 4 through 10 uh, in the last sermon, if you want to listen to that on the website. But for today, we have the interpretation of this parable, verses 11 through 15. Verse 11, now this, the, the parable is this, the seed is the Word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the Word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no firm root. They believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, They are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. Why the different responses to the gospel when it's preached or when it's sung or when it's shared? Why? Well, the sower, the farmer, the sower is the one who preaches the gospel. And in this passage, the sower is not the issue. Um, The seed, according to verse 11, is the word of God where we find the mysteries of the gospel and the mysteries of the kingdom of God. The seed is not the issue. We don't change the word to try to get a response. The seed is not the issue. No. What explains the different responses to the proclaimed gospel? And it is this. It's the soil. It's the soil, and the soil is the heart of a person. The soil is the heart. The heart of a person determines how he or she will respond to the preached message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, there are four types of hearts of people. There's four types of hearts of people so that they receive the Word of God in different ways. First, number one, we're going to look at four types of hearts that explains this reception. Number one, a hard heart. A hard heart. Look at verse 11 and 12. A hard heart. Verse 11, now the parable is this, the seed is the Word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard, then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart, so that they will not believe and be saved. Okay, remember, a farmer has a field, the sower has a field, and is taking the seed and scattering it, and sometimes around that, most time around that field were roadways where animals and people walked. And they were packed down from walking. And so some of that seed, the Word of God, falls on the hardness. And it doesn't sink into that soil. It's just right on top. Easy picking for the birds to pluck it out. That's the picture. What's the interpretation? That's what we turn to in verse 12. And he's going to explain it for us. So the road represents the hard heart of a person who hears the gospel. It's like the seed of the word just sits right there on top of the heart. It's on the heart, though, sitting there, but it doesn't sink in. And guess who's involved? 
when it doesn't sink in. So that it's taken away. The devil and his dark forces are involved, the text says. The devil, the demonic forces, do not want the Word of God anywhere near the heart of man so that it might sink in. They don't want a person. They don't want you thinking about the truth. They don't want you contemplating the truth. They don't want you even beginning to consider that you are in a passage like this. And so the devil comes like those birds quickly before it can sink in on that hard heart and snatches it away. There is spiritual warfare every time the Word of God is preached or proclaimed or shared. This reminds me of one passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 3. Don't turn there. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 3, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Well, you ask, and I think it's a good question, how in the world does the devil do this? How does he snatch the seed of way? Let me tell you how he always works. He lies. He is a liar and the father of lies. Now, what do I mean by that? He will implant lies into the mind of man the time the Word of God is preached. Nasty. He will lie to you about sin, that it is worth it. You cannot give it up. He will lie to you about relationships and a fear of man. It's too scary. You can't do it. He stirs up fear of man. He'll lie to you about yourself and your own ability and worthiness before God. You're not that bad. You do the best that you can. You're a good patriot. He lie, and if that doesn't work, he'll lie to you about your past. And he'll lie to you about shame. There's no gospel that is ever going to cleanse a sinner like you. He'll go both ways. He'll lie to you. Stir up shame and embarrassment. After all, he is the father of lies. That's what he does. What does it look like, though, when you preach and there's a hard-hearted listener? Well, it's variable. What it looks like. It's variable. Here's what I mean. Most of the time, I think a hard-hearted listener is this. Bored with it. Disinterested. Listening to sermon after sermon and just bored with it, daydreaming about other more real things. No attraction to the things of the Lord. No reflection. That, that's a hard-hearted here. On the other hand, it's so interesting. It's like the devil does two things. The hard-hearted here can be opposite of that. On the other hand, the opposite reaction with a hard heart could be in just an angry response to the Word or a hostile response response to the Word. You know, the in-your-face, red-faced response to the Word is another way a hard-hearted hearer, but at the end of the day, they're the same because there's no real listening to the Word. There's no real contemplation of the claims of the gospel on the heart of man. It doesn't sink into the heart, and soon the whole sermon is And the whole conversation is forgotten, a old dead relic from the past. And I pray then that that you're not bored with this message today, that you're not distracted by so many lesser things. I, I I hope that your perspective when it comes to the Word of God is not this. My life is going to be grabbing that fishing pole this afternoon. Can't, 
when are we going to be done? Or watching that game and finally getting a little relaxation or saving up for that car. I pray that God would soften our hearts to be interested in what is being said today, not lulled to sleep. That is a hard-hearted response, and you have to know that it's spiritual warfare. It is war when we come together to hear the Word of God. It's coming after us. It's coming after us. It's spiritual warfare. The devil, the text says, you saw it there, right? That the devil actually takes it away. It's in the text. He's the roaring lion prowling around, seeking someone to devour. And now we get a bit of picture how he does it. One of the ways. J.C. Ryle, an old pastor, says this, quotes, Nowhere perhaps is the devil so active as in a congregation of gospel hearers. Nowhere does he labor so hard to stop the progress of that which is good and to prevent men and women from being saved, end quotes. And it doesn't often look like a hard heart. It doesn't often look like anger towards the gospel. It's tiredness. It's distraction. It's a wandering mind. It's a thousand little things so that the sermon is dull and boring and forgotten like a bad day. To him who has ears to hear, let him hear. Why do some people immediately reject the gospel? It's not the preacher. It's not the message. This text says one of the reasons is it's a hard heart. But there's a second type of heart that determines how a person receives the Word of God when it is proclaimed. Secondly, a shallow heart. A shallow heart. We find that in our text. I'd like you to look at it. Start at verse 6. Other seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Okay? Remember, there's a part of a farmer's soil when he's sowing the seed to, for grain to grow that falls on ground that looks really good on the outside, but about eight inches down, there's a layer of limestone so that when the plant takes root, the roots go a little bit, but they hit the rock and they're starved of nutrients and water and they wither up and die. Now for the interpretation of that. We know it's the heart. Now look at verse 13 for Jesus' interpretation. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear... Okay, we have... Just a note for, from somebody up front that I don't have the time in the back, so that's going to be a problem. So someone needs to tell me something. <laughs> okay, so I don't have a watch. Okay, which maybe is God's providence today. <laughs> those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while. And in the time of temptation, fall away. The top soil of the heart, in, in this heart, is really shallow. The rocky layer soil is there. You don't see it from the outside. And this happens when people hear the word of the gospel, and it sounds really good. I mean, full forgiveness, going to heaven, the righteousness of Christ, an answer for my mess, my life. And it sounds so good, and there's so much emotion even at the preaching of the Word. There's initial joy, the text says, joy. And they believe for a while, but soon something happens, a time of temptation comes, or a, a time of trial, you could translate that, or testing comes. And they fall away. In a parallel passage to 
the parable of the soils. We know that that trial and testing, there's a, there's a temptation to doubt the Word of God because the trial or testing that comes in the parallel passage is affliction or, or persecution that comes because of the Word, because you identify with Christ. Something bad happens, and you're like, what? So the temptation from the world and the flesh and the devil is, wow, I thought they said this was good news. That, that I thought Jesus would bring me the good life. I thought He would solve my problems. And isn't that what the Bible says and what was held out? That He would fix my marriage and make me a better communicator and Maybe even give me health and, and wealth or what have you. But, but look at me. Look at you. Look at us. We're a mess. And we're battling and we're struggling. And your family thinks you're crazy for loving Christ. And you're, now you're not getting that promotion at work now because you don't sign the pronouns, the bottom of the email. And you say, this is not what I signed up for. And then you say, Christianity doesn't work. And that person falls away from their profession of faith. Brothers and sisters, sometimes you preach the gospel, you share the gospel, and some get pretty excited about the gospel. They will be filled, the text says, with joy. But they may not be a true believer. It may not be saving faith. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. Emotions, I'll tell you. Maybe I'll get an amen. Emotions, they come and they go. Day in and day out. But the real evidence of saving faith is if an individual endures temptation to quit Jesus when it gets hard. The testing and trial of faith, and all throughout the New Testament, and I can't cross-reference it, I'd like to, I'll do one. But the, the crucible of faith, where faith itself is tested and proven, is a great gift. The afflictions and persecutions, listen to James chapter 1. I'll give you one. James chapter 1 and verse 12. Blessed, happy, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For... Once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. At the end of the day, it seems like this heart, this shallow heart, are converts to the gospel, but they get disillusioned and then disappointed with Jesus, with all of Christianity, and especially with other Christians. And the gospel did seem like at one time really good news because Jesus can take away my depression and Jesus can fix my marriage. It's as if the gospel and God is some kind of a genie that you get to rub and get your wishes and your life fixed. That Jesus is the answer for the good life and he's an answer for my sin too. But when the pressure comes, and doesn't feel good, and they lose things, it's not what they signed up for. And so sometimes people respond to the gospel for wrong reasons. But then when they name the name of Christ, those relationships go away, and that job is suffering, and then they're diagnosed with cancer, and, about, and have five months to live right after they get saved, and they're thinking, what? This is Christianity? 
As one pastor said, quotes, Jesus will fix everything for them on their terms. And that is exciting and fills them with false joy, end quotes. But when temptation of affliction and persecution because of the word come, they fall away from their profession and they quit Jesus. And I've seen it and you have seen it. And they get very bitter. The truth of the gospel and their plan hits the limestone. There's no water and the seedling dies. Now listen very carefully. You can feel very alarmed about your sin. You can feel a great pleasure at the thought of Jesus forgiving you of your sins. It is possible to feel this way initially and to be completely void of a gracious work of the Holy Spirit within your heart. Many tears. It could have been a walking of the aisle. There's nothing wrong with tears. There's nothing wrong with coming to Jesus physically. But make no mistake about it, as J.C. Ryle said, quotes, those are no certain marks of conversion, end quotes. He goes on to say, quotes, nothing should content us but a deep, humbling, self-mortifying, which means self-killing work of the Holy Spirit and heart union with Jesus Christ, end quotes. Nothing should satisfy us. The shallow heart, the shallow heart response. So the question I have is, what are your experiences expectations from Jesus. The good life, an easy life, things fixed and things perfect, your best life now, or, now I'm talking to you, believer, you know it, is there just a deep contentedness at, at, that God actually has adopted me as his child? I'm in his family no matter what, he's got me and he's going to love me and provide for me. There's a deep joy, isn't there, in the forgiveness of sins and knowing that Jesus paid it all for me. But when the hardships come, there is a deep abiding conviction for the believer. And I know this is you. Is it? Though, no, look, if no one goes with me, I'm still going to follow it's just me. The bottom line is the shallow heart doesn't, hasn't felt the depth of what Jesus said from his lips. Whoever desires to follow after me must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. But if you're there and you're just disappointed with the whole thing and about to cash it in, there is doubt in the life of the true believer. But there is in the heart of a true believer when they're tempted to cash it in. There's grace that they do not fall away. There's, there's Jesus looking you in the eye like the disciples of old did when he started talking about eating flesh and drinking blood and all of that crazy stuff. And all the disciples, they say, the believers were walking away from him. And the twelve are left. And they say, Jesus says, and I can see the look on his face. Are you going to go away too? And I can just hear Peter because he's the one that always talks. I can hear him almost saying, well, we'd like to. The stuff you're saying. But where else would we go? We have come to see that you are the Savior of the world, that you alone hold the words of eternal life. So people receive the word in different ways. There's the hard heart. Secondly, there's the shallow heart. And put on your seatbelt. There's the third type of heart that responds to the preached word, the preoccupied heart. Or, if you like it better, the divided heart. You choose. Verse 7, other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. So, there's parts of the field, right? It looks really good. The grain goes in. But there's also thorns and thistles that grow up, and they grow quickly, faster than the grain, and they sort of squeeze out the sunlight, and they squeeze out the nutrients from the soil, 
And so what happens is, is that little green um, plant never grows up to maturity and never produces any fruit and is choked out. Okay? So that's what happens in verse 7. Let's find out the interpretation then in verse 14. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. There's no fruit bearing to maturity. There's no real change. Why? Because the thorns have grown up and choked out the sunlight of truth, the nutrients, the water of the word, and the grain just sort of withers away and never bears fruit. Do you discover this on the first day after you hear the word? There are three thorns that choke professing Christians out so they don't bring fruit to maturity in this text. Number one, verse 14, look at it. It's in the text. I wouldn't make this stuff up. Number one, the first thorn, worries of this life. Worries of this life. Being, uh, being so anxious about what you're going to eat, what you're going to put on, how you're going to fit in, how you can earn a living. Being so anxious about these things that you're so preoccupied with the here and now, so divided by the things of this world, so preoccupied with them, with this life, that you're not able to move on to the spiritual priorities. You're not really spiritually seeking God and hungering for His presence. And experience his, his power from strength to strength through the valley of weeping. And you're not content to rest in the plan and the promises of God. You're choked out. And that's all substituted for worry about the things of this world. What might that be in our lives, in your life, that's choking you out? Well, trying to, to look good, trying to find a mate trying to pursue a career. I mean, those are all fine things, but they can be thorns. When I was first saved at age 27, I had a number of thorns that were threatening to choke out the young plant of my profession. I wanted to be number one in my career and be somebody. I wanted to try to pass my radiology exam. Sounds pretty benign. You wouldn't believe what I was willing to sacrifice for that. We had miscarriages, which really challenged, and there was so much disappointment of it all. I'd given up on church at the time. That was always fun for my wife. And I was failing as a husband. I was worried about... So many different things. The thorn of worry. We've got to weed out worry. There's a second thorn, the riches, and they're related. The riches of this life. The love of money, Paul says, is the root of all kinds of evil. We think that money is not deceiving us. We have it in check. We think that, but that's the deceitfulness of of money. We have to be careful. Can we love Christ and love money at the same time? Now, I know you're like, well, if I shake my head, no, I'm in trouble, but so I'm kind of, what are you going to say? How can, oh, well, is it physically possible to be in two places at once? I would say it is just as impossible to come to Jesus And to truly hold on to the false god of riches, one has to go. It's why Jesus says in the passage that Jeremy read, Matthew chapter, listen to these words, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven 
where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For, listen carefully, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There is a link in the Word of God between the pursuit of money and a lack of integrity before God. How awful is the thorn of the deceitfulness of riches? In a, in a parallel passage, it's called the deceitfulness of riches. Here, it's just called riches. I'll tell you a story. When I first was saved, I was tested right away. I, and, and this is a story where, by God's grace, I passed the test. I don't like to give those stories very often. I have a lot more of where I didn't pass the test. I was a young radiologist, ton of debt, ton of kids, desperate to make some money. And so I signed a contract for an MRI center um, that on just one contract, I would make $5,000 a month on just one contract. It wasn't illegal. But something didn't sit right with my conscience. I couldn't sleep for a month. I didn't have peace. I finally talked to my wife who gave it up, and that was just so hard. Because of why? Money. A year later, that company went under and was called on the carpet by FBI sting for unethical practices. And I, and I made it out. Oh, may we have the heart of a believer, which is the heart of Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 8. Listen to Proverbs 30 and verse 8. Two things I requested of you. Deprive me not, Lord, before I die. Remove falsehoods far from me and give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me that I might not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I might not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. We need, we need to be mindful of the thorn of riches. And then that's all summed up with the last thorn, the pleasures of this life. Now, not all of these things is money in and of itself bad. Are there some fun things and pleasures in this life that are ordinate and good? Of course. But if you are preoccupied with this life and the pleasures of this life and you're living for this life, even those good things, and often they turn bad, but even those good pleasures of this life will choke out your profession and your, uh, your following of Christ. I mean, perhaps it's a hobby that you're willing to lose your family over. I've seen it. Perhaps it's entertainment, that this one, this is mine, Lord, this is mine. Perhaps it can, be, it can be good things, like sports, but it can then shift to pleasures of this life, like drink, sexual vices, dabbling here and there. It's soul-ruining entanglements. And Jesus is calling and saying, they're thorns. Put them off. Rip them out. They're choking out the word of the gospel. The worries and the riches and the pleasures of this life can make us preoccupied with the things of this world and can choke out the word of the gospel and destroy our profession of faith. And it's subtle. It's a thousand different choices. It's little decisions. It's like a frog being slowly cooked in a pot of water. It's like a cancer that's slowly spread throughout your body. It's a preoccupation with other priorities. Who has first place in your heart? Listen, who has first place? I know, well, Pastor, I, I, I'm struggling. Good. Who has first place in your heart? Is there something that you're holding on to that Jesus can't touch? You can't touch this. This is mine. Let it go. 
Let it go. One scholar said, and I think we need to hear this, quotes, fruitfulness is thus prevented by excessive concern about one's welfare, possessions, and comfort, end quotes. Are the thorns of worry, riches, and the pleasures of this life choking out the Word of God and keeping you from Christ? Or keeping you from Christ or keeping you from growing in Christ? From bearing fruit. There is a third heart, the preoccupied heart, the divided heart. But praise the sovereign God of all grace, there is a fourth heart. And let me tell you, let me be clear here. And you may have questions, and we'll deal with those another day. This is this text. Those are other texts that you're thinking of. The fourth heart is the only heart that is a true Christian. Praise the sovereign God of all grace. Praise that there is a God of mercy and grace and power. To him who has ears to hear, let him hear. There is a God of all grace who is graciously giving ears to hear, is graciously giving eyes to see. There is a God of all power who is taking hard hearts like ours. And he has on the day of his power. Do you remember that day? When he softened your heart and he made it good on the day of his power so that the word of the gospel would sink in to the fourth soil, which you can write it down now, the good heart. Or should I make it very clear, the heart that God makes good in the day of his power to receive the word of the gospel. Verse 8, other seed fell on the good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. Now let's hear the interpretation in verse 15. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart. Now watch this. And hold it fast. And bear fruit with perseverance. You see the issue Here is not the sower, not the seed. The issue is the soil, the heart of man. That makes all the difference in how you receive the word of God. So if if you have a heart that allows the seed of the word to sink into, then you're the one who has saving faith. And what will happen is you will hold fast the word against the enemies of your soul when the devil comes when the persecutions and afflictions come, when the thorns threaten you to choke you out, you'll be kept by the power of God for a salvation ready to be revealed on the last day through the power of the Holy Spirit. As Philippians 1.6 says, that He who began a good work in you, a good work, that's the good heart. He began it. He softened your heart. And He who began that good work will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So, for your theologians out there, if you want a little theology here, the good work is a new heart. It is a heart made good on the day of God's power. It's a work of God to soften your heart, to give you ears to hear by His grace. This is called, are you ready, theologians? This is called regeneration. This is called, are you ready? being born again. When you are given a soft heart, that is God causing you to be born again. It's like your eyes were open. What? I am a sinner. Oh, look at the glories of Christ. I need you, Jesus. Oh, you're the pearl of great price. I'd give up anything. What made you do that? Are you that smart? Are you that good? God did. He came and he softened your heart. He gave you the ears to hear, and that you saw his glory, the glory of God on the face of Jesus Christ. He overcame those obstacles, and he will keep you until that day. It is God and his grace and his mercy in which we thank. But we have to be real. This is Christianity. The others are knockoffs. 
And if you're a believer, you get this. You get this because you get it. Persecution has come. It is here. It is here now. You're tempted even now by the circumstances of in your life. And you may have times of doubt. But Jesus has prayed for you that your faith would not fail and you just aren't going anywhere. You'd like to. But you're like that woman. You're a mess, weeping on the feet of Jesus. People are staring at you and saying you shouldn't be in this dinner party. Thank you very much. You don't care. You need Jesus. You're a loser. You're a sinner. But you have one needful thing, to be in the presence of Jesus, to be near him. It overcomes your worry to be near Jesus. And that is the heart that is made good by the power of God. And the result of that is saving faith, holding fast the hope of the gospel, and it's a hope that lasts. Brothers and sisters, now listen carefully. True saving faith flows from a heart made good by God, and that will produce fruit with steadfastness. And a parallel passage, some 30-fold on the fruit, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. But he who began that good work in you, he will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. The hard heart, the shallow heart, the preoccupied heart, ultimately it will be revealed, for God will not be mocked, that those do not possess Jesus Christ, although they do in many cases profess Jesus Christ. But those first three soils are not true believers. It is only the fourth soil. And so let me drive that home. When I was 27 years of age, I was born again. I had professed Christ for years. I was born in a a good Christian home. But when I was in my late teens and early 20s, I was consumed with myself and trying to be popular and what other people think and my career. I made every excuse in the book not to come to church. I rotated them. I was still reading my Bible. The Lord was still at work. One day, when I was 27, my friend Chris, who's dead now, but my friend Chris invited me to Twin Cities Bible Church, and I had made excuses for seven years, and I rotated them of why not to come because I didn't want to look bad. But, then, but I had my first baby, Abby, so now I had an alibi. I can bring Abby and show her off, and that is my reason for being here. I knew some people at the church. So I went, but secretly the Lord was on the move in my heart. Seven years. And Lloyd preached in the book of Galatians, Pastor Lloyd Johnson. He preached the gospel of Christ, and I was like all ears. I wanted to be here. This is weird, I thought. By the way, in three weeks I was going to take my radiology board exam, and I was studying 40 hours a day for that. But now, Chris gave me the book by Arthur Pink called Practical Christianity that day at church. I opened up that book. I'm supposed to be studying radiology. The chapter one was entitled Saving Faith. And I thought, what other kind of faith is there? And then he unpacked for me a type of faith in Christ that does not save. There is a faith in Christ that does not save. There's a demon faith. The demons believe and they shudder for crying out loud. Better theology than us, I would dare to say. There's a head knowledge faith. And I'm like, why? How could I not know this? Why didn't somebody tell me this? I said, I did. I read about the nature of saving faith 
because that was with the chapter. Here's what it is, isn't, here's what it is. And I, and I, it was a, it was a coming to Jesus Christ of a, like an empty handed beggar, like the leper. If you will, can you, will you cleanse me, Jesus? Oh, I'll touch you. I'm willing to be clean. Oh, and the saving faith was submitting to the authority of Christ like the Gentile centurion did. And saving faith was surrendering my life to the God who had forgiven me, a love for Christ who has forgiven me so that I would rain tears on the feet of Jesus. And you don't worry about it. I love him. And I begin to realize that this faith is a gift. It's a miraculous gift. And then as I'm reading at week, I'm just crying and I'm just like, I'm I'm thinking I'm rededicating my life to the Lord, but everything changed. I begin to battle sin. I begin to want to be at church. I begin to love the Word of God. I thought I was going crazy, and so did my mom. But there was a deep-seated joy. And let me tell you, life got worse after that, not better. I am so, and I became, and I still am, and I think we are today, so thankful that there's a faith in Christ that saves, that there's a work of God in the heart that is real. And I'm thankful at age 27, the day of his power, he came to me and passed me out of death and into life. Oh, believer, are you not thankful today? <laughs> but aren't you not alarmed today? That there's indwelling sin within you and thorns that are still attempting to, to grow? And there's spiritual warfare when we come to the Word of God. I mean, I think we know that the world, the flesh, and the devil are opposing the work of God in this church and in our families and in us individually. I don't think that's a surprise. And I hope that today, instead of discouraging you, makes you turn your hat on backwards and gives you a little smirk that it's not about us. It's about the God of all power and that He will get us home And that his work is enough. And the work that he began, he will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And I hope that it gives you joy today. That he was willing to save you. And may it give us a new love and a fresh love for Christ. And to remember that he is indeed alive and well. And is ever living to pray for us. But I must ask the question as we close. Just one question and we're done. What soil are you? I wished someone would have asked me that. That is the question of this text. This is what Jesus is asking us. Which soil are you?